is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In 1935, Virginia Rausch was a schoolteacher and a graduate student who divided her time between Columbia University and her hometown of St. Petersburg, Florida. By 1944, she was a prisoner at Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. In between, Rausch married a French man, Philippe d'Albert Lake, and she became Virginia d'Albert Lake, moved to France, and became an active member of the French resistance. When she was captured by German forces on June 12, 1944, d'Albert Lake was escorting downed Allied airmen to a hidden encampment as part of the Comet escape line. French resistance escape lines during World War II comprised thousands of people. They fed, clothed, and protected downed Allied airmen at great personal risk. But what distinguished Virginia d'Albert Lake from most of the people in the resistance was that she didn't have to be in France. Although she'd married a French man, she was still an American citizen. And this meant that she had the option of returning to America when the war began. But d'Albert Lake chose to stay behind and to work with the resistance. We're talking today on Fordham Conversations about d'Albert Lake's story. It's not one that's well known to many of us, but historian Judy Barrett Litoff says that it ought to be. Litoff is a professor of history at Bryant University, and she's the editor of a new book that tells Dalbert Lake's story through her own diary and memoir. That book is called An American Heroine in the French Resistance, and it is out now from Fordham Press. Judy Barrett Litoff joins me this week on Fordham Conversations. Professor Litoff, thanks so much for talking to me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Tell me who Virginia Dalbert Lake was and why her diary and memoir were worth publishing. She was a very adventuresome young woman who in, who was a graduate of Rollins College in Florida. And in 1936, the summer of 1936, she went to an international convention dealing with education in England. She made a side trip to France and met and fell in love with a Frenchman named Philippe Dalbert Lake. And that was in the summer, and nine months later, they got married in St. Petersburg, Florida, and she moved with him to Paris. Um, And they were just a totally in love couple. We're not thinking about war. This was 1937. They were um, just in enjoying life to the fullest, both in Paris and at the family's country home uh, on the coast of Brittany. And um, when the war broke out, actually, in 1939, she sort of looked at the war as almost as if it were a sporting event. Oh, the war has started, you know. Um, And she had a good time the first year of the war because she was young and beautiful and single. I mean, not single, but had no children. And she followed Philippe from his to his various military postings, and often she was the only woman there. And she just loved adventure. And I think it was this adventuresome spirit that pulled her through the World War II years. Who was Philippe? Um, Philippe was a young Frenchman who worked for um, uh, a navigation company, a British navigation company. His mother was British. His father was French, so he was bilingual. He came from a well-to-do family. They had a chateau in Brittany as well, and they would split their time between Paris and the chateau in Brittany and in a country home that they were building about 35 kilometers northwest of Paris called Nell. And it was at Nell, and it was at their little studio apartment in 
Paris where they hid the downed Allied airmen. So this must have seemed like a real adventure for her in a lot of ways, not just because she was in a foreign country, but also because she was sort of a regular kind of middle-class girl. Right, exactly. And um, so, yeah, it was it was quite an adventure for her. She was having to learn French. She even commented on the fact that she was so happy when the other French soldiers would bring her into the conversation as if as if she were a, a native Frenchman or French woman, I should say. And uh, so she's learning French. She's still like a tourist in, in France, you know, seeing sights for the first time and just having a very, very different life from the one that she had lived in St. Petersburg, Florida and Dayton, Ohio, where she was born. Now, why did you feel like this was a story that you wanted to publish, that you wanted to tell? It's such a compelling story. Uh, in 1989, Virginia Dalbert Lake was uh, awarded the Legion of Honor, which is France's highest civilian honor. It's not given to very many people, and when I learned of that, I wanted to know more about her and what she did and, and, and why she was so significant. And there were only three or four identified American women who worked with the escape lines that were uh, established throughout Belgium and France and then on into neutral Spain. And she is recognized as perhaps the most important of those four, three or four women that have been identified as participating in escape line work. And escape line work was so very, very dangerous because there were as many as 12,000 individuals who were a part of the escape line next network. So it was subject to all kinds of infiltration and escape lines were broken many times. People, if, if men were uh, discovered, they were shot on sight. Women like Virginia were sent to concentration camps. So that in and of itself is remarkable. She, she was responsible for helping personally 66 down airmen make their way back to England. And this was extremely important to the morale of the aviators because by 1944, by the spring of 1944, uh, downed Allied airmen had a 50-50 chance of making it back to England. And this was such important work that they were doing, and it took so long to train airmen that it was extremely important to get as many of those downed airmen back to England as possible. She was extraordinarily uh, daring in this work. For example, she would uh, escort down Allied airmen through the streets of Paris, showing them the sights and uh, walking side by side with Gestapo officials. She, of course, would not allow these airmen to, to speak because most of them could not speak French, and even if they did, they would speak it with an American accent. So she would just pretend to be this young woman who was in love with whoever she happened to be escorting around around the Paris streets and the Paris uh, tourist sites. And she, she tells a story, for example, of one time running into a friend of Philippe's, and she pretended that she didn't see him, and he pretended he didn't see her, but she knew that he must have thought that she was being an unfaithful wife the way she was pretending to be in love with this downed airman. But she said, of course, she wouldn't tell him because he wasn't a close enough acquaintance to let him know about the um, the work that she was doing with the, res with the resistance. We did not sleep much that night. 
Instead, we talked over the whole evening, discussed the boys, and made a big decision. We would work in the underground. Dangerous, yes, but we would be careful. It would be worth every risk run just to meet more boys like those tonight and lead them from right under the German noses back home and the work yet to be accomplished. So Virginia and Philippe sort of decide, almost it seems on a lark, that they want to join the resistance in the first place. They sort of spend a lovely evening with an American airman who is being escorted out. They talk about it and they say, gosh, we'd really like to do this. What kind of work do they go on to do? Okay, so that was in the fall of 1943 that uh, they became actively involved in uh, the Comet escape line, which was perhaps, was which was indeed the largest of the escape lines that were in existence at that time. And so what they would do is that they would make contact with other individuals who were called chiefs of the Comet escape line, and they would contact Virginia and, and Philippe when they needed a place to hide the down airmen before they could find guides who would then escort them to neutral Spain, where they would then make their way to Gibraltar and back to England. So they hid the downed Allied airmen both at their country home in Nell and in their Paris studio apartment. And, you know, she would, ha- as you mentioned in the introduction, she had to clothe and feed and nurture them. They had to get false ration tickets. They had to um, get false identity papers for these young aviators. They had to find clothing for them. They had to find proper shoes. And remember, this is wartime France, and there's a scarcity of everything, everything, just to cook meals, for example, the gas was only allowed for th- the fall of 1943 until June 12, 1944, when she was arrested by German police. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Writing in 1945, Virginia Dalbert Lake described her feeling at the time of her arrest this way. Something broke inside me. I knew somehow that it was all over. There was no more reason to hope. The sun that only a few minutes ago was so bright and warm now seemed eclipsed by a gray fog. Disappointment and fear clothed me in a hot vapor. Sweat started in my armpits. My scalp tingled. I had no choice but to stand there in the center of the dusty road, grip my handlebars, and wait. Delbert Lake would spend the next 11 months as a German prisoner of war. We're talking today with Judy Barrett-Littoff about her new book, An American Heroine in the French Resistance. That book collects Dalbert Lake's diary entries, as well as her memoir, into a single volume. It's out now from Fordham University Press. But although Dalbert Lake's diary and memoir chronicle her activities during the war, the book isn't just a war story. It's also, maybe primarily, a romance. Let's return now to our conversation. What struck me about this story was that it really is, especially in the first part, the diary part, is really fundamentally sort of a romantic story. It is. It seems like they had this great love and that she really, in addition to being very young and obviously very naive, she really just wanted to be by her husband and she really just wanted to 
be with him all the time, and that was the basis of her doing a lot of what she did. Tell me about their relationship. It it's it's just a perfect love story, you know. And um, uh, like I said, she followed him to his various uh, military postings because they had no children. They had always wanted children, but she had not yet become pregnant, and so she had the freedom to go from military post to military post. She loved to be with him, and she would often say, you know, I know I could go back to America. Well, not not by that time, but in the early stages of the war, she could have gone back to America, but she said, why should I do that? I want to be with the one I love and who means the most to me in, in, in my life. And, of course, her parents were urging her to come back to the United States, but she wouldn't do it. She did not want to leave his side. So by the time things really became quite bad, she was not able to leave. Exactly. I was surprised when I was reading it that she just kept staying on and on and, you know, it seemed But she would not have gone back. It wouldn't have mattered. It would not have mattered. She would not have gone back. You know, I think I think if American authorities had come and said, you've got to go back to the United States, she would have hidden out somewhere. She was determined to be with, with Philippe. And that sort of contributed to a tone in the earlier... This this book is divided up into the the diary and the memoir, and the memoir has a very different tone, but the diary is... is you feel like she's almost batty because it's so cheerful in the midst mm-hmm. of this German occupation. Was this really for her until, until she was arrested? Was this really just a big adventure? I think it was largely an adventure, and, I, you know, young people feel that they can't be hurt. And I think she just thought, you know, if I'm careful, everything will be okay and we'll be successful at what we're doing. Um, uh, And she was very careful. I don't mean to suggest that she wasn't, but um, eventually, of course, she is um, arrested. And of course, I should also emphasize that in the diary, there is no mention of her work with the resistance because it was so important not to put uh, information like that down in writing because if the diary had been discovered, she would have been in, you know, very, very, very uh, difficult trouble. I was surprised to read in Virginia's diary how friendly everyone seemed to be toward the German soldiers right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Was this a common thing or was this sort of an American thing? No, this actually, it was a survival tactic that the French people practiced. And actually, a a lot has been written about this by other historians, that it wasn't as if, you know, the the Germans were uh, there to, well, well, obviously, the Germans were definitely in control. I don't mean that. And you didn't want to cross the, the Germans, but the soldiers... Um, and the local people had to get along, okay? The German soldiers were depending upon the local people for food and eggs and and places to live and so the and the the local people likewise were depending dependent upon the the German occupiers. So there is as a survival technique, um, they learned how to get along. They didn't like each other necessarily, but they did learn how to get along so that when the Germans would come to their house in um, in Brittany and say, you know, well, we need eggs, we need this, we need that, and oftentimes they would say, but we don't have any, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes they would find it anyway and, and so forth, but but it, there was a lot of back and forth be, uh, relationships, and she even had a German admirer, you might remember, who kept, wanted to court her, but of course, she would not give him um, 
any attention whatsoever and he finally gave up but like I said there was there was a lot of give-and-take between the Germans and the local French peasantry because it was the only way they could survive now she does seem to be quite weirded out by the admirer but in general (laughs) she does at, at least toward the beginning speak quite highly of the German soldiers you know she says they're polite they're nice we really enjoyed talking to them is right. there a point at which this changes in her view? Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, not in the the diary though. I think in the in the diary she's pretty pretty accepting of the Germans, and she sees communicating with them as a challenge. You know, it's just another one of her challenges, another one of her adventures. Um, after she was a, a, um, arrested, her attitude about the Germans changes dramatically. And for years and years and years she, after the war, she could not stand to be in the same room with other Germans. Uh, so her attitude, you know, changes dramatically after, really, after the after she becomes active in in the resistance. But again, she wouldn't write that in the diary, but she could write that sort of thing in her memoir. But it would have been too dangerous to have written a di- written the, her thoughts about uh, about the Germans once she becomes involved involved in the resistance. You know, she couldn't do that. It was too dangerous. Is there a point <laughs> where she finds out what the Germans have been doing on other fronts? News of the war does leak in. Okay, um, even when she's in Ravensbrück, for example. Um, she um, knows about the Battle of the Bulge, which was the last major German counter-offensive counter in uh, mid-December 1944 through mid-January 1945, and is very disheartened by that. Um, she doesn't, to my knowledge, know about the atrocities that are taking place in uh, extermination camps like Dachau. But, of course, she does know what has been happening to Jews all over Europe because sending Jews into concentration camps had been going on in the in in the late 1930s so she did know about that and she and she had been living in France of course under occupied Germany when uh Jews were required to begin wearing the you know the yellow star and they were beginning to be deported to Germany so she knew all she she did know about that but she didn't know about the worst of the atrocities now the diary and the memoir that Virginia Dalbert Lake wrote they have really different tones even though they're not separated by that much time it seems when you read them almost like in the memoir she's a different woman describing different events even though we know that she's working for the resistance during a lot of the time that the diary covers why does her voice change so much between the diary and the memoir? Well, I think she began to understand the seriousness of the war, especially after the fall of 1943 when she becomes active in the resistance. And so it does take on a very, a very, very different tone, especially after her arrest on June 12, 1944. How old was she when she was arrested? She was 34 when she was arrested. And what happened to her subsequent to her arrest? Well, First, she was in these pr- two prisons in and around Paris, and then on August 15, 1944, as Allied troops were getting closer and closer and closer to Paris, they could hear Allied artillery as it was coming closer, and they were so hopeful that they would, um, that they would be rescued by the Allies. But 10 days before Paris was liberated on August uh, 25th, she, on August 15th, 
was deported to Germany, and she ends up at this infamous concentration camp for women known as known as Ravensbrück. And it was it was a concentration camp. It was a it was not an extermination camp. It was a labor camp, and it was a it was a labor camp for women primarily who had fought against the Nazis in one way or the other. And it was a huge complex. Uh, at the time of her arrival in mid-August, late August of 1944, it was reaching its peak population of somewhere between 45 and 65,000 women. It had many sub-camps as well. And while it was not an extermination camp like Dachau, uh, many, many, many women died be- through hard work starvation, and starvation of the 130,000 women that were processed at Ravensbrück. Only 40,000 uh, survived. So it was just a horrible place to be. And she was there at Ravensbrück. Then she went to one subcamp, and then she spent the vast majority of her time at a subcamp about 80 kilometers east of Ravensbrück where she helped to enlarge an airfield by digging out heavy, heavy stumps and putting down large slabs of, of, of earth to, to even out the airfield. And this was the winter of 1944-1945. It was one of the coldest winters on record in Europe. She had very little heavy clothing to wear. She and one of her good friends would get up in the morning and they would take the straw from their beds and stuff it down their 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 clothes to try to protect their bodies from the cold. And, and they were being given watery soup and moldy bread. And she said she didn't mind the work so much, but what she did mind were the conditions under what under under which she worked. And and they really were horrendous. And by the um, by, the January of 1945, she says, many women were losing their minds. They had roll call every morning, early in the morning, and she said women would just fall over in the snow during roll call and die. And um, it, it was one of the most... Um, she writes, you know, about these experiences, and they were just totally horrendous. And she had to have a lot of fortitude to to have survived that. She was later asked, how did you survive those horrible conditions, those wretched conditions? And she said, you had to keep up your morale. You couldn't let them see you cry. The women who cried were often dead the next morning. So she is released from uh, Libanon? Eventually she makes it to Libanon, but what happens first is she goes that she's sent back to the main camp and at Ravensbrook and she spends a horrific eight days there in um what was known as the tent and the tent was a huge tent that held about seven or eight thousand women because the population of Ravensbrook had grown even 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 more and so she was, she's there and w- women are uh littering the floor. Dead bodies are littering the floor. Women are lying in their own excrement because so many of them were suffering from dysentery. But in um, 
the middle of February of 1945, she is assigned back to the out of the tent and into a regular block, a regular uh, cell. And um, then a few days later, in, on February 26, she's singled out and brought before the camp officials. And they say, in a couple of days, we're taking you to a um, to to a prisoner of war camp. Liebenau on the German-Swiss border. Liebenau was a prisoner of war camp for enemy nationals like American and British Commonwealth citizens and other important individuals. And Liebenau, unlike Ravensbrück, was subject to international humanitarian laws as dictated by the Geneva Agreements of 1929. So the International Red Cross had some oversight over this camp, uh, would bring in uh, supplemental food and medical supplies, and it was at Liebenau that she received the medical care that she so desperately needed. And on April 21st, 1945, free French forces made it to Liebenau, liberated Liebenau, and because there were so many refugees and so many prisoners who needed to be processed, it was another month before she was reunited with Philippe on May 27, 1945. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning on Fordham Conversations about Virginia Dalbert Lake, whose diary and memoir have been published by Fordham University Press. My guest is Judy Barrett-Litoff. She's put the diary and memoir together into one book, An American Heroine in the French Resistance. By the time Virginia Dalbert Lake was released from Robinsbrook, she had lost about 50 pounds, and she weighed only about 76. In her memoir, she described the shock of seeing herself in a mirror for the first time. What ugly creature was this? A woman, yes, but neither hips nor breasts. Great lusterless eyes staring out of the gray countenance. The skin stretched like parchment over the skull and high cheekbones, beneath which were empty holes. No hairline showed under the sagging turban. I turned away in horror. Now, what happened to Virginia and Philippe after the war? You know, they lived a very quiet and satisfactory life, dividing their time between uh, Paris and the family chateau in Brittany. And remarkably enough, although in, in May of 1945 she was 50 pounds underweight, she regained her health very, very quickly. And exactly one year after she and Philippe were reunited, they were reunited on May 27th, 1945, on May 27, 1946, their first and only child, Patrick, was born. So it, it's a remarkable, you know, story in that it does have such a happy ending. She remained in contact with many of the downed Allied airmen, and of course they wrote her many cards and letters. They visited her because they were so grateful for the work that she had done and that they that she had risked her life to save their lives. And so even with all the honors that she received, and she received honors from Belgium and from England and the United States, and of course, as I mentioned, the Legion of Honor from France, what meant the most to her 
were the birthday cards and the greeting cards and the letters and the visits from the downed Allied airmen that she had helped rescue during the Second World War. Well, I'll ask you this last question, and I'll close with this. Why should people read this book, and why should they care about Virginia Dalbert Lake? Well, she, um, I think it, she summed it up herself when she said, I did the right thing. And I think her story is a, a great uplifting story because she is a young woman who risked her life to do the right thing. And we all have to question. And I've asked myself this question many, many times. Had I been in her situation, would I have been brave enough to do the right thing in the way that she did it? And so I think we can learn a lot from that from her story, and 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 it can inspire us uh, in 2006 when we're faced with complexities and challenges, either personally or globally, and we can say, can we do the right thing? Well, Judy Barrett Litoff, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, it was my pleasure. That was Judy Barrett Litoff. She's a professor of history at Bryant University in Rhode Island, and she's the editor of An American Heroine in the French Resistance. Details about the book are at FordhamPress.org. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have comments or questions about this week's show, why not write us? Just go to WFUV.org and click on Staff Directory to write to me, Nora Flaherty. Special thanks this week to WFUV Assistant Program Director Tara Anderson for being the voice of Virginia Dalbert Lake. Up next, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. I'm Nora Flaherty. Have a great weekend.